You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. We all know that oil and gas and coal have been lobbying against pricing carbon. It's interesting to see that very few ski resorts, very few agriculture companies, there's lots of very few real estate companies, insurance companies are lobbying in favor of climate change. It's in their interest. The difference is the time scale. I'm David Abel, and this is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. Today, we'll be looking at the influence that business has or could have on the politics of climate change. Is the industry taking real action that brings to bear its full power and influence? Or are companies mainly providing lip service to the existential threats posed by a world in which temperatures are likely to rise by at least two degrees Celsius in the coming decades and could surge by twice that without significant action? What are examples of companies that are truly using their wealth to shape the debate and persuade politicians to act? We'll look at how climate change affects businesses differently and how some proposed regulations, a carbon tax specifically, could help or harm different businesses. If it hurts, it's effective. And a lot of the things that that businesses do, you know, consultants call win-wins. Hey, it's good for the environment. It, it, it improves the bottom line, changing light bulbs, reducing your carbon footprint. That's all corporate uh, operational greening that no one would attack you for, no one would criticize you for. But as an example, when Nike ran the Kaepernick ad, there was real risk there. Sure, they did market analysis and said, it looks like this makes sense. But the first day their stock dropped, what was it? Three percent, six percent, I don't remember. And and that is kind of the barometer. That's Auden Schendler, Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company, one of the country's largest ski resorts. His company has been outspoken about the need to address climate change, and it has taken action. The other way to test is to just think about whether you're having influence on the problem. You know, are these uh, actions that a corporation is touting do they reach a global scale in a way that, that would affect this global problem? To understand the debate around a carbon tax, we'll now talk to Bill Eco, a co-founder of the Partnership for Responsible Growth and a former American ambassador to Austria during the Obama administration. His group, the Partnership for Responsible Growth, has been among the most vocal and pressing politicians and CEOs to put a price on carbon. The Washington-based group, among others, has argued that the cheapest, most efficient way to reduce emissions is to require those who produce them to pay their costs. The group has been rallying businesses to sign on to the cause, but why should major businesses and others support such a significant step? And when the politics seems so abstract, so impossible, how could this actually come to pass? We're also joined by Mike Toffel, 
a regular contributor to Climate Rising, and a professor of environmental management at Harvard Business School. You've studied how companies act on environmental issues and what motivates them. Why would it be in the interest of companies to support any tax at all, especially one that could have a direct impact on their bottom line? Well, there's lots of companies who would benefit from carbon taxing, right? Any companies that are currently disadvantaged by carbon being free. The easiest example to think of is probably renewable energy companies, solar, wind, et cetera. Like they're competing against technologies that are either subsidized by having their pollutants be free or subsidized by having the military, for example, protect shipping lanes to bring oil from the Middle East to the U.S. So there's a whole host of industries that would directly benefit by having uh, carbon pricing. There's a whole other set of companies, and you might think about these like high-tech or pharmaceuticals, for whom short-term pain of having carbon pricing is somewhat immaterial to their bottom line, and yet in the long run is beneficial to the stability of the capitalist system, to the cities of our country, to the stability of, of the world, really, if you think about climate migration, that preserve markets. So there's both a short-run incentive for some industries and a long-run incentive for others. You think about the ski industry, which I think of as the canary in the coal mine for warming. Right? Ski industry profitability at many resorts is dependent upon the edge, like how many weeks of skiing they can have. And as warming occurs, it's not going to occur all at once. It's not that all of a sudden they won't have snow. It's that they'll have snow for a week less here and then a week less there. And that drives their profitability to, to potentially to bankruptcy. So you'd also would expect to see companies in certain industries whose very existence depends on a stable climate wanting to weigh in on these. But, but we haven't seen that much. We haven't seen that much of these companies. You know, the folks who are lobbying against policy can see very well a concentrated risk or stock price impact that those policies will have on them. And for many others, it's diffuse benefits, it's long-term benefits, and that creates the problem that we're in right now. And at the same time, most companies rely on gasoline to distribute their goods and move people around. And those prices would probably rise significantly under any scenario of a carbon tax, and that would probably impact the vast majority of companies' bottom lines, no? Yeah, at least in the short run. And it's, and it's not always the case. If you think about electric grid, Renewable energy is cheaper in some places now than fossil fuel-based electricity. And so grids are themselves greening and companies are themselves greening to try and get out of contracts uh, for long-term fossil fuel-powered electricity in favor of renewables because in some places it's actually cheaper. You know, I spent 20 years in the food distribution business and had a fleet of tractor trailers. And certainly we used fossil fuel energy for, to move our tractor trailers around. And yet so did our competition. So it really wouldn't have any impact on me. Whether the price of gas was high or the price of gas was low, sure, it impacts my bottom line in a given year, but I just pass it on in the price of goods. So my competition have to pass it on as well. And if at the end of the day, I'm a little bit more efficient than my competition, then it's going to hurt them more than it hurts me. So I'm okay. I just focus on the efficiency. Bill Eco, as a former ambassador who's worked with other countries on climate initiatives, what precedent elsewhere in the world is there for national carbon tax? Well, there are several countries that have started pricing carbon, probably over, what, 40 countries now? 
that have priced carbon in some sector or in some way. Probably the best example would be British Columbia in Canada, which enacted a price starting at $15 a ton and moved it gradually over a few years up to $30 a ton. During that time period, they saw their emissions drop significantly and they grew their economy at the fastest rate of any province in Canada. So it clearly didn't hurt their economic growth. We see other examples. You know, the Brits have put in a very modest pricing. The Swedes have a modest pricing on some sectors of their economy, high on some sectors, but very specific sectors. So what we've seen around the world predominantly has been a very modest approach, price being too low to really move behavior significantly, but more of a dipping your toe in the water and testing it out. The difficulty, of course, is being the one country that goes first with a more significant uh, price and if you're not willing to impose it on your trading partners, which is really what you have to do, then no one else is going to match you. And therefore, it's tough to move it around the world. But that's going to happen eventually. What are some of the pitfalls or some of the advantages that we've seen in economies like ours? I don't think it necessarily means economies like ours per se. But in any economy, if you enact a price on carbon and you don't either rebate the proceeds to at least most of the proceeds to the population, then you'll have protests, right? Because it becomes very regressive and you have the yellow vests in France protesting against it, right? Or alternatively, if you don't impose it at your border and you don't feel you have the strength trading-wise to impose it at your border, then you can't protect domestic industry. But if you do impose it at your border, you can protect domestic industry and you can make it spread around the globe because your trading partners then says, gee, I can either have my exporters pay you this carbon price at your border or I could collect it myself and then they're exempt at your border. I think I'll do that and collect the revenue myself. Why let them pay it to you? Mike Toffel, it seems to me like support for carbon tax is a good litmus test for being able to distinguish companies that are serious about addressing climate change and those that might just want to look serious about it. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. A huge environmental issue for this generation is climate change. And as much as we also need to be doing lots of other sustainability initiatives like fostering recycling and composting and a whole litany of issues, climate change is an issue that neither has proximity in space or time that really usually creates the incentives for change. I mean, the reason that London cleaned up their pea soup fog, which is actually pollution at, at the time, or the reason that the U.S. passed the Clean Air Act was because the cities were choking in smog. And this was killing people, killing babies. So people could put together the source of those problems, the immediacy of the trigger to the respondent. With climate change, it's much harder because... It's a global issue. Carbon emissions emitted in China affect the atmosphere just as much as carbon emissions emitted in Detroit. And there's a temporal issue, which is we're looking at time horizons where sea level rise will get worse. It will inundate some cities. We're looking at time horizons where hurricanes will get more intense and more frequent. But it's difficult to pin any of those events on something that's happening today. Scientists understand the long-term trajectories, but this distance in time and space make this a much harder problem for people to wrap their heads around. 
And it just makes it seem okay to just bury your head in the sand. To your point about what's a litmus test, companies a generation ago greening their own operations, that was taking sustainability seriously. Then they moved on to also think about cascading these issues to their supply chains. Then that was sort of best practice. What today, in my opinion, best practice looks like is companies proactively not only saying that their own operations are carbon neutral, as many companies are now increasingly doing, but also understanding that this is a system-wide problem. And if they're not contributing to a system-wide solution through policy, their actions are really just a drop in the bucket. Bill Eco, there's been some effort on the right to support a carbon tax. Former Republican secretaries of state James Baker and George Schultz, for example, have a plan that centers around providing dividends from the revenues of their carbon tax. Under their plan, a family of four would receive about $2,000 a year in so-called carbon dividends. But the plan would also grant fossil fuel companies legal waivers from any liability for their contribution to climate change. What do you make of their plan? Is it viable? Is it the right approach? Well, it has been successful in attracting corporate support. And so I think you have to give them credit for crafting a plan. There's a group called the Climate Leadership Council that has put this plan out there starting at about $40 a ton. And it's attractive, particularly to the oil and gas industry, because they get protection from these proposed or potential lawsuits. And uh, it all, they also suggest instead of regulations on greenhouse gas emissions, we'll just tax them. And in the industry, there's no question across the board among all the oil majors, they'd far rather have a carbon tax, know what the price is, be willing to incorporate that and pay the price or make the investment necessary to eliminate paying the price. That's, that's business, right? And that makes sense to them as opposed to a regulation which could cost 10 times as much. And they really, and you know, it can be very difficult to manage around, you know, and there is merit to that. There is certainly support for that on the right. As to whether that could get through Congress, that's another question. I think the real question is if you approve that waiver, like who's going to pay? Right. So we don't know, I think, yet whether, in fact, a liability claim can be successfully made in the courts. So they want to take that off the table, hoping that it that it just goes away. If it's successful, right, that means potentially hundreds of millions of dollars coming from a particular industry to remedy problems that stem from their products. And if you decide to, to take that off the table, those hundreds of millions of dollars are going to have to come from somewhere to build up the infrastructure and to facilitate the adjustment to a warmed climate. And that somewhere is going to be taxpayers. So if you think about this in question, like who should pay? Should an industry pay or should taxpayers pay? I think that's the way to be thinking about it as opposed to just thinking, should they be liable or not? Well, even if uh, the fossil fuel companies have to spend you know, hundreds of millions of dollars like the tobacco companies, that still is a pittance for what all the retrofitting of buildings and everything that has to be done to bring about some measure of carbon neutrality on a, uh, on a broad fashion, right? For sure. It's not going to pay. I don't think anyone thinks it's going to pay for it all. But hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions of dollars potentially in the long run, that's that's not nothing. That's a, that's a lot of money that could be uh, provided by an industry if it's successful. And who would pay for it then? Not tax for that portion. I mean, their consumers 
or that were ultimately their shareholders. Some would say that that's a more economically efficient way to think about things, just like uh, tobacco or lead paint. Mike Toffel, there are other groups such as Ceres, the Boston nonprofit, that have been trying to organize shareholders and corporate boards to address climate change. In your view, what do you think would be the most effective means of pressuring companies to support a carbon tax or other measures that might really make a difference? Well, I think shareholder pressure has been an effective way to foster more transparency about what companies are doing, um, both about reporting the risks that climate change uh, is posing to them, perhaps the opportunities as well that they might perceive. That a lot of that transparency has been driven by shareholder resolutions. So that's an important contribution to the problem. Uh, I would also like to see shareholder resolutions that require transparency on political lobbying, uh, the political membership uh, that these organizations have through their trade associations, the efforts that they're making for or against uh, carbon policy. I mean, that could also be shareholder mandates that uh, that organizations like Ceres and others could be pushing for. People who are free marketers believe in transparency. They believe in full information. So that's a long distance from where we are now, given the regulatory regime under which we operate in the U.S. that allows unlimited amounts of money to flow through uh, political action uh, funds to have an influence on uh, on policy. Bill Eco, there is some precedent in the United States for a carbon tax. Here in the Northeast, nine states have formed a compact called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is essentially a cap-and-trade program that sets a rising price for power plant emissions. A similar program exists in California. What are the pros and cons of expanding those programs to a national level? Are there shortcomings to such a plan? Are there things that would be missing? You know, the the benefit to a cap-and-trade program, like we see in the Northeast or in California or in Europe, is that it does put a price on carbon. The downside is that it puts too low a price, typically, on carbon. And if you think about it, there's a reason for that. When you establish it, all these companies come in and complain, this is going to impact me. I need free credits. I need free emissions. I need a phase-in period, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what that all drives is too many emissions out on the exchange, and therefore the price is too low. So the price in the exchange in the Northeast is a little over $5. In California, they've mandated a, a minimum, but it's a little over $15. In Europe, it's now around 25, or at least 25 euros, I guess. And so maybe getting closer to $30. But for a long time, it's been very low in Europe as well, until they've just started ratcheting up the, minimum, the floor price in their exchange. So that's the fundamental flaw. If you combine it with a strong floor price, yes, you can get a significant enough price and you can move markets. The other flaw in a cap and trade approach is the price fluctuates. And therefore it's difficult for businesses to make a long-term investment knowing what the price is going to be so many years out. Because often you need, you need to make an investment thinking 20, 30, 40 years into the future. And with a, the, the advantage to a fixed price or a tax, and if you know it's going to go up X dollars a year, you can make that investment and you know how much money you're going to save 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now by making that investment. So it makes it a little easier to do and to apply into the business world with a tax as opposed to the cap and trade. And it's a little easier to impose at your border because you know exactly what the price is. And again, it's not fluctuating every month or every week or every year. 
Mike Toffel, you've studied the efficacy of CEO activism. Your findings suggest that while chief executives can sway the public on some issues, they haven't been effective with climate change. What have you learned from your research about why that is? So we've done some some field experiments to see whether CEOs who speak out on social and political issues that are not obviously related to their bottom line, which we're calling CEO activism, whether that has an impact on how people perceive the political issue. And on the issues that we began looking at, which were the Religious Freedom Act in Indiana, uh, bathroom bills, um, other issues like that that are state-level policies where there are conservative policies being imposed. When CEOs spoke out on these issues and cast them as discrimination issues rather than religious freedom issues, that that substantially eroded political support from the public for those policies. So they were able to recast the issue successfully in, in trying to sway the public. When we did something similar on climate change, we asked uh, folks, you know, do you, is the... Is there enough? Is there too much? Is there not enough government action on on climate policy? And we preceded that question by a variety of conditions where we said CEOs are speaking out on this issue as one of the biggest threats to security or as the fundamental economic issue of our time or a critical issue for, you know, their grandchildren. No matter and when we, no matter which casting we gave, it didn't sway people's perspective on whether the government's doing too little, too much, or or the right amount on climate change. So from that, we sort of conclude that CEOs are going to be effective at recasting in some dimensions, but in some issues, but not in others. And so, from my takeaway from that study is that while CEOs are being effective in changing the dialogue around issues that can be interpreted as discrimination. They are not, that, that avenue is not a particularly promising one to sway the public on climate change. Bill Eco, a- any national effort to reduce emissions, even that of the world's largest emitter, the United States, by historical terms, can only do so much to affect the global increase of emissions. How could we create a carbon tax that would either incent or coerce other countries like China and India to follow suit? Well, there's no question but that we cannot solve this problem with a price on carbon that's only in the United States. It needs to be global. It needs to be a global, uniform, significant price on carbon emissions. Now, how do you do that? The beauty of a carbon tax or carbon fee, however you want to call it, I prefer to call it a fee because particularly if you are rebating most of the proceeds by cutting some other tax, it's really not a new tax. But let's say you impose that fee the WTO allows you to impose that fee on energy intense, intensive imports at your border. So it's pretty easy to calculate because you know what the number is. You know what the their inputs are, their cost inputs are in that product. They could argue and fight you on it, et cetera, but you basically know what it is. And you can impose it at your border under the WTO, and it's not something they can appeal in the WTO because it's specifically called for. So let's say we impose that on Chinese imports now. The Chinese would say, well, then I'm going to match you. And if you, I've matched you domestically, then you can't charge me at your border. So I'll give you an example, a real world example. A gentleman from one of our largest aluminum manufacturers, I won't name the company, but you could probably guess, mentioned to me, you know, if you could pass that, get that passed, we could impose that at the border 
we would no longer have to be closing our aluminum smelters in the United States because we can't compete with Chinese aluminum. Why? Because Chinese aluminum is coal-fired. And once you impose that fee on their aluminum, all of a sudden our aluminum is more competitive because ours is in the Pacific Northwest fired with hydropower, right? So now we're reopening aluminum smelters in the U.S. and, and you know, the Chinese won't be able to compete with us. So that's a great story. But, uh, and you can only do it because if you impose that fee for an environmental purpose domestically, you're allowed to impose it on imports. And consequently, you can then credit it on exports if you're exporting to a country that doesn't match. But what would happen would be countries around the world would very quickly join that club. China has told us, you do that. We, if you could bet that through in the United States, we would match you. The EU has said we would raise our floor price in our exchange and effectively match you. And even now in the EU, they're talking about the possibility of imposing a carbon price or tax where they're seeing the weaknesses of their exchange system. Uh, I don't know if they can get that through or not, but they're in discussions on it. So it would quickly grow. Now, India might be a tough sell. Russia might be a tough sell. But peer pressure and diplomatic pressure combined with the pure economics that the United States may be a large emitter, but we're also a large trading partner for every one of those countries. Everybody wants to export to the United States. So, of course, they're going to be looking long and hard at, maybe I should consider matching you and taking that revenue for myself. Mike Toffel, as a sign of hope for some political consensus, there's now a Climate Solutions Caucus in Congress though one of its Republican founders, Florida Rep. Carlos Corbello, was voted out of office last year. Do you see any promise from this bipartisan group of lawmakers? And what role would business leaders be playing to support their finding a path that would create some kind of national consensus for addressing climate change? I think one really important role that companies can and should be taking is showing up in Washington to counteract the narrative that the sky is falling if we impose a carbon price. Right now, and, and we've seen some calls by legislators to CEOs saying, come talk to us and tell us your story. Because failing to do that, whom they're hearing from are the very trade associations who are representing those who are going to be hurt by a carbon price. If, there's, if the other side is silent, then that's all the data that they're getting. So we really do need companies. And this is where the series BICEP organization is bringing CEOs to Washington to lobby in favor of, of a carbon policy. Um, and you see some other activist groups in, in, in other industries like Protect Our Winters, Save Our Snow, uh, in the outdoor ski industry. Uh, uh, the skiers in particular, the professional skiers taking a, a role here. So there's a, there's a role for consumers. There's a role for activist groups, both representing industries and uh, and a whole variety of, of perspectives here that need to provide this counter-narrative. Well, there's no question. I think it's helpful to have a Climate Solutions Caucus. We have not seen the Climate Solutions Caucus actually get behind any responsible legislation yet uh, to price carbon or otherwise. But at least the rhetoric is moving in the right direction on the right. And you know, the Climate Solution Caucus is, is one way to at least step forward and say, okay, I acknowledge that climate change is a problem and we need to find a solution. And I'm encouraged by the fact that more and more we're starting to see folks on the right say, yes, but we need a market solution. The most interesting thing has been the development on the left, this Green New Deal. Uh, 
This has now created an opening for Republicans to move to the center and grab carbon pricing as their solution. So we're starting to see Republicans say, you know, I'm opposed to the Green New Deal, crafting it as this left-wing socialist big spending agenda, which to a certain extent it is, uh, at least it sounds like it. It's really hard to say what the Green New Deal really is because there's so many different versions of it. But uh, that creates an opening. They can now ca- grab the center and say, I'm for market solution. So we saw Senator Cornyn from Texas saying, we need a market solution. We see Mark Meadows of the Freedom Caucus saying, we need a market solution. You know, this is starting to happen. Matt Getz in Florida, who two years ago, Republican congressman, wanted to abolish the EPA, is now saying, you know, climate change is a big problem and we need to address it. But the Green New Deal is not the way to, do- to go. And he proposes the Green Real Deal. You know, now the Green Real Deal is just investing in you know, low carbon energy, et cetera, et cetera. But at least he now knows he has to get on the right side of that issue. Thank you both for joining us. Bill Eco is a co-founder of the Partnership for Responsible Growth and a visiting professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Mike Toffel is a professor of environmental management and faculty chair of the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. Thank you. Great. Thank you. That's it for Climate Rising this week. I'm David Abel. In our next episode, we'll look at the challenges facing the solar industry. It's the big people that you know about, the Facebooks, the Targets, the Ikeas that are deploying solar on their roofs. But there's a whole nother level of companies that are interested in doing it that aren't as well-versed, aren't as sophisticated in terms of energy purchases and designing business models for them around how they aggregate demand and how they aggregate supply, I think is a really interesting opportunity. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, David Abel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback.